Le Chat Noir Journal, Episode 3. Part 2 of Changing the World. The slow burn of creating something significant. So last time we dove into this word significant, but aside from some generalizations, we really didn't get into specifics of the experience of individuals. Well, aside from my crass fictional projections of a discontent, dying, and apparently vulgar J.S. Bach. <laughs> so I figured I'd stay on this subject of significance a little longer, but zoom into some historic examples and some personal experiences of my own, which have shaped or even defined my opinions about living a life of significance as both an artist and as a human, worthy of all this air I'm sucking up and food I'm stuffing in my face. So for me, it seems to be more and more about connection. It's not some narrow idea of simply being in a room with someone, but rather the full spectrum of what connection can mean. It can still happen in isolation, but in this case, maybe it's feeling connected with what is motivating you to create, or maybe the way your work will connect to others when it's done or ready to be seen or heard or felt. I think for me it's most importantly about being part of something infinitely bigger than yourself, but doing your part of it with excellence, with inspired articulation, with humility and a sense of humor, but simultaneously with the unwavering commitment that it is unquestionably the most important thing, because it is. And then the complement to that, I feel, is just as important, which is not running anyone over while you do it. You might have to pass by a lot of people on your way, and you might have to intentionally leave people behind to be true to yourself or to persevere when others can't. But there's simply no place in this world for carelessly or intentionally stepping on people, mocking them if they're trying, or kicking them while they're down. Whatever success you might taste after doing that will be tainted with that same poison you dished out. And if you don't care, well, in this case, I truly believe the way that shitty karma finds you down the road will be twice as bad. And you'll have no idea where or when it gets you. But it will. But let's just say we're doing it all exactly the way we imagined in our idealistic minds. Creating and loving and living and helping and whatever it is you see as ideal in your life. How do we break into the fabric of culture with our art to make that difference we're trying to make? How do we become greater than our individual selves in our lives or in our art? One story about Picasso comes to mind, where in Guernica, the culture was not only absorbed and presented with exceptional artistic expression, but it was followed by the deliverance back to the horrible source of its creation with both humor and resonance. He painted it in 1937 in his Paris home in response to the German and Italian bombing of the Basque village from which the piece takes its name. 
Fast forward to occupied Paris during World War II. He was labeled a degenerate by the Nazis, of course, and he wasn't allowed to show any of his work during the occupation. But I have a feeling they were still careful not to kill him or hurt him or harass him too much, as not to stir the Parisian public. You have to keep in mind, he was quite the celebrity already. And Guernica was already very well known, having premiered at the World's Fair in Paris a few years before. And I think at the time of this story, it may have still been in the special exhibition at the Met in New York. Anyway, they kept an eye on him with the Gestapo checking in without notice here and there. On one of these occasions, an officer barged in with the usual not-so-elegant fascist charm and did the customary condescending stroll through his studio, looking at works and being the typical Nazi jackass intimidator. The cinematic part of my brain always sees this guy with one of those ceremonial batons, not touching anything with his hands and using it to peek through the leaning stacks of canvases. I guess it's the stereotypical part of my brain too, but I think people generally get a free pass these days with stereotypes when it comes to Nazis. There was a photo of Guernica on the wall. I think the officer probably recognized it as something he had seen before because of its iconic significance at the time and likely its occasional presence in print, but he likely didn't know anything about it. Once again forgivable stereotype. So he asked, did you do that? Picasso, without a beat, replied, no, you did. I personally see this legendary story as part of the work itself. In my opinion, the art begins at the idea. Or sometimes even, like with Guernica, with an event in time which happens before the artist even knows about it, and then becomes inspired to create based on that idea. Once the idea is there for an artist, the creative process begins immediately. It's not necessarily the beginning of any method or approach he or she generally uses, but the idea is already moving and churning and finding its way to consciousness and extremities and mental and physical motivation to do what the artist does with these kinds of ideas. Sometimes if the canvas or blank manuscript or dance floor or even just a napkin to write on is there, this transition to realization is extremely short. The details are obviously very different for each of us, but I think the general idea is the same. And the art certainly doesn't end with the drying of the paint. True art to me is living and breathing. It lives on sometimes even if it's destroyed. Rivera's Man at the Crossroads comes to mind. What a monumental loss, but what a riveting example its destruction tells us about art and politics. It might be worth noting that a lot of people assume that the bombing of Guernica was a World War II bombing, just because we generally jump to that conclusion when hearing aerial bombing in Europe. But though it was perpetrated in collaboration with the Nazi Luftwaffe, this happened during the Spanish Civil War, and not even on the soil of an official future allied or Axis power. World War II doesn't officially break out for another two years. So, fast-forwarding back to Paris, whether Picasso's pointed jab at this officer was possible because of the protection by his own fame, or 
Maybe it was purely fearlessness on his part. I think it was probably both. It somehow brought the peace directly back to its horrible source. Back not only to the idea which inspired the peace, but back to the perpetrating military force behind the appalling incident. This incident which inspired the commissioning of the work, which enabled the artist to create this powerful piece with public funds from the public most affected by the incident and with free reign to allow the idea to be realized as only the great Picasso could realize it. This to me is what art is all about. When a work's life is linear and its affect somehow exponential, that's certainly impressive on its own. But when a piece comes full circle in the infinite world of variables which brought it into existence, this is just perfection to me. And it lives on. I remember seeing a headline back in 2016 that read, As Aleppo burns in this age of lies, Picasso's Guernica still screams the truth about war. And now, a year into the war in Ukraine? I haven't seen it yet, but I'm sure Guernica will pop up again in discussions about the destruction of towns like Kharkiv or Bucha or the inevitable next tragedy to be added to the list of deaths perpetrated by insecure megalomaniacal world leaders. History sadly continues to repeat itself, and great art can be the enduring compass which points this out to us all, over and over again, as we refuse to learn from it, until we do. Now I can't claim to have been part of something in my career which will live on in such a pointed way as Guernica. But I do know what it feels like when that thing you create finds its own life and its own path and it returns to you long after you've put it out there and almost forgotten about it. In 2001 I produced, or finished producing, my first full album which was a concept album for an animated film musical fable called Crick Crack by David Azaro and the late, great Stonebud Whitney, which is about a little boy, half Haitian, half Dominican, trying to find his mother in Haiti during one of the many historic uprisings on the island of Hispaniola. During the two years I spent producing this album with David and P.J. Bianco and about 50 musicians and singers, I met Ewol Josui. Ewol is a singular soul, a holy man and performer with a voice that just transports you to another world. He is now, and most importantly, my dear, dear friend and brother, and more than 20 years ago, after we worked together on this project, he asked if I wanted to maybe produce some tracks for him on his new album. This led to collaboration on a few songs, including one called Garçon Solide, which literally translates as something like solid boy, but in Creole it has a deeper meaning, especially in the context of this song. It's about an inner strength, something connected to the soul or to the earth or to the ancestors of the voodoo faith, the strength of a survivor. So let's fast forward to the devastating 2010 earthquake in Haiti. Hundreds of thousands were killed in just moments, and 
vast parts of Port-au-Prince were destroyed. By this time, Ewol and I had already done a number of performances and tours together and had some other tracks in the works, but the tragedy called him back to his homeland to help his country heal and recover. He was offered an important governmental and cultural position as director of ethnology. Part of his job includes running a museum, which he rebuilt after the quake. It houses some of the most important artifacts of the country's history and culture. He had mentioned to me that Garçon Solide had started to be played regularly on Haitian radio after the earthquake. This warmed my heart, that it might be giving some comfort to some of the people suffering, but when I went to Port-au-Prince to finish recording the last tracks of Pelerinage, which is Ewell's most recent album, something extraordinary happened. Well, a lot of extraordinary things happened. My heart nearly exploded my first evening there when I was honored at a full voodoo ceremony at Ewell's sacred family home and temple. This evening was pure joy. Hours of ecstatic music and dancing and connection to the earth and animals and ancestors of the celebrants. A full family of drums, chorus of at least ten rambos. These are the holy women who lead many rituals in Buddha faith. And, of course, Ewul, leading it all with the relentless and infectious spirit anyone near him is so privileged to witness and absorb. I was beside myself. And this all under the electric skies of a passing hurricane, which only added to the intensity and magic of the evening. The following days in Port-au-Prince and in Jacmo, where the recording studio was, would bring so many moments I'd never forget. But I need to talk about the morning after the ceremony. I was picked up by Ewol in an armored SUV, likely the only chance at some safety for me traveling around Haiti at this time. And it was driven by one of the drivers of the then president of Haiti. Side note. This president was replaced a month later by Jovenel Moise, who was assassinated less than two years ago, an assassination which led to the rapid rise of already powerful gangs, one of which vandalized and burnt down Ewo's family home and temple, which we joyfully celebrated in the night before this story takes place. We were dropped off outside the entrance to Ewo's museum, a bustling corner across from both the Champ de Mar market and the grounds of the recently destroyed National Palace, which collapsed during the earthquake. People were all smiles and greeting a wall, and we were approached by the typical street merchants in any big city. I thought I heard something familiar, but didn't have time to think twice about it as we were herded into the grounds of the museum pretty quickly. Once the gates were closed behind us, Ewol asked me if I heard how a few people on the street had called to him. He said, they call me Garçon Solide. My knees nearly buckled. <laughs> the rapid pace of the city slowed to a spectrum of deep blue and red sunbeams underwater as the tears formed in my eyes while walking through the beautiful garden of Ewol's museum. This is why I do it. The slow burn, the long game, the faith that what you're doing is 
what you're supposed to be doing, even in the face of failure, financial insecurity, artistic obscurity. This is the deliverance, the validation that when you do what you're called to do, there is this tiny little chance of having a profound impact. To bring a great work with no guidance into the light. To help a lost artist find their way. Or like with Eol, to join him on a crusade. I don't like that word at all, but I'll use it here. A crusade to preserve the roots of a culture. To help facilitate a voice of the people. And to keep showing up even in the aftermath of tragedy, in the midst of instability, and sadly, as we now know, on the threshold of even darker times. But, incredibly, that's not the end of it. Only a couple weeks ago, Ewell sent me a text. It was a link to a TikTok video, and I almost didn't open it, because, you know, China, obnoxious kids, other super judgy reasons on my end. But I had accidentally opened a TikTok link about a year ago that he sent me, showing someone lip-syncing to one of his songs, which we are now working on producing. And it was delightful. <laughs> so I made sure all my counterintelligence gizmos were turned on, and I clicked on the link. It wasn't a typical TikTok video, as if I know what a typical TikTok video would even be. It was a video broadcast of some Haitian radio show with a host and two guests. I saw it a bit out of context, it was just a clip, but in that clip suddenly one of the guests started singing Garçon Solide. Eventually the others started joining in as well, some even in harmony. The specificity of their singing in relation to the takes we chose and worked towards in the studio those 20-some years ago was so crystal clear. It felt like I was reliving those sessions in a way. But it wasn't until the end that something they did caught me off guard, and this is why I'm sharing this with you now. If you listen to the original track, at the end of it we transition into a traditional song in langage the voodoo worship language, as opposed to Creole, which the rest of the song is in. And this part was not written by Eol. It's a traditional voodoo spiritual song, a worship hymn of sorts. It's called Kaja. Actually, I don't know if it's called Kaja, but that's what we called it. And this word Kaja doesn't actually mean anything. It doesn't translate into anything directly but it's the word they use when calling to their ancestors who brought their culture from West Africa to Haiti. Something they see as a kind of divine event in their cultural history, which they believe was brought about by their gods kind of calling to them from Haiti, in a way. Anyway, in this hymn, Ewol sang it a cappella for me many, many times, leading up to the recording of the song. I was trying to keep all the sacred material authentic, but at the same time find a way for it to be both musically and universally accessible. It was rhythmic, but also somehow free, 
but I felt the beat needed to be in a certain place in relation to the phrases in order for it to work in the track with a rhythm section playing along. Otherwise, we would have had to make some really complex time signatures and rhythms and whatnot. So sorry if I'm losing some of you here, but just stay with me. At first, Ewo was resistant to the subtle change I made to the phrase for good reason. But when I coached him through it in the recording sessions, it started to gel a bit and then became part of the track in a pretty natural way. I think he understood why we needed to do it by then. Fast forward over 20 years again, and that's 20 years of the track becoming commonplace in Haitian culture and even being played on Haitian radio stations daily after the tragic earthquake. And now a whole generation of people quite possibly have heard that hymn for the first time from the track and not the ways previous generations first heard it. And those who already knew it before likely have heard it more now in Ewol's version than in traditional voodoo ceremonies and other cultural celebrations. These, I guess, millennials, or maybe even younger, were singing it like it was their own. And when they got to the end, they were insisting on this new phrasing of the hymn. In their minds, it was the way it exists and how they chose to sing it and celebrate in the spirit of it. When I first heard this, my reaction was to laugh <laughs> a bit and, um, and just enjoy it. I could even hear a kind of American accent in the one guy's Creole, which I thought was kind of funny and somehow fascinating and ironic at the same time. But then something heavy hit me. Just earlier that day, I had this thought which was weighing me down quite a bit. I forget what I was listening to, but it must have been one of my favorite songs, which moves me to tears every time with its genius in writing or production or profound relevance in some way. This heaviness started with the thought, God, I hope I still produce something which has some worldly and profound effect. And then I see this frickin' TikTok video, of all things. This video which shows me clearly, without a doubt, through the most subtle musical details, which would be hard for most people to discern, but nonetheless, that creative decisions I made in both service to a culture and a talented man, as well as with the joy of my own creative energy and ability have somehow become part of the fabric of that very culture it was in service of. Something woven into a people, into a tradition, into a faith, into an art form. Something which has self-perpetuating power now. Something not just greater than myself, but somehow completely beyond my original influence on it. Yet my spirit is somehow still part of it and inseparable from it. Yes, more of this, please. <laughs> and so much positive reinforcement of the reminder that the things we do have a life. Maybe even a life of significance.
they live beyond us. We put it out there and it might just die instantly. Or it might live far beyond our own years. And sometimes we won't even know which of the two had transpired. But what we can be sure of is whether we know we're doing what we should be doing. And if so, doing it with unwavering focus and dedication, with integrity, preserving all involved's dignity, leaving it all out on the stage, because that's what we do as artists. This is our calling and our duty. It's not that a reward is promised or even in any way considered while we act. It's our answer to that calling. And yes, to that calling, we simply must answer. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you next time. And if you want some additional behind-the-scenes commentary, subscribe and you'll get access to even more content. I hope you're enjoying this and uh, and I look forward to making the next one for you. Ciao. Dem